What's going on? This is the Saturday Down South podcast. I am Connor O'Gara. Will, we're doing things a little differently today. Got a great pod coming up. AL.com, SEC insider John Talty. He's going to join us in a little bit. Talk some coaching things in the SEC. A little Texas, Oklahoma as well. Some some scheduling things that he's going to run through. Plus, in lieu of Bold and Brash slash figuring it out, we've got Adam Stockton. Coming on a little bit later, talk about his 6-0 Kentucky prediction. Adam joining us from Italy, of all places. That's where he made that, that prediction. I know we've talked about that in the past. So it's great to be able to have him on, talk a little bit of Kentucky as well. And of course, we're going to do our usual picks over-unders for a deep SEC slate week seven. Well, this slate's really good. It, okay, like I feel like I am underselling slates when I first look at them. And then the more I think about them every single week, I'm like, no, 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 no. Like six of the seven games are are like legit good. And I, I think that right now, my only question is just when are we gonna have a bad slate? I, I, I think that maybe that's just SEC bias coming through, but it's loaded, it's a really good slate. Yeah, I mean, we've kind of gotten to a point where every team in the SEC, except for Vandy, South Carolina, and LSU are good. So that's uh, <laughs> it's a pretty great place to be actually. So we're gonna talk about all that, but first, on Saturday night, we're going to get one of the best offensive games of the year in college football with Ole Miss, Tennessee. That's one of the exciting week seven games that we have to look forward to. It's going to be up tempo, high scoring, big plays, just good old modern football at its finest. Why do I bring that up? Because it's the type of game where you have your snacks ready to go from the jump. What We've type all of been snacks, there. You're- Connor? Yes, we're right. Fascinating question. Thank you for asking that, Will. You know, when you're in the kitchen, maybe you're making dinner, making popcorn, you know, it is. Lane Kiffin, after all, or you know, you're getting pizza out of the oven. You're doing a lot of different things. That's all it's going to take to miss a touchdown in this game. And dare I say, you might have a moment moment of panic in which you realize, oh my, I am out of Texas Pete. So you're going to have to go to the store, and you're going to have to get more. And your regret is going to be that you didn't listen to this very ad and say to yourself, now is the time to go order your Texas Pete. Make sure that you're ready for Saturday with a full pantry, fridge, whatever it is of Texas Pete, because not only is it football season, but right now we're going to give you a discount. All you got to do, go to texaspeat.com. You can get recipes, t-shirts, hats, hot sauces by the box. Just get it by the box. Then you're good for the rest of football season or another week, whatever it is. And if you do that, you can get 20% off your entire order with the promo code Saturday down South. That is all one word Saturday down South. Use that promo code on texaspeat.com. Sauce like you mean it. Week seven is here. Picks, we've got over-unders. I was debating which one I wanted to start with. And I settled on Auburn and Arkansas because alphabetically, yeah, no, not that at all. Fascinating game. <laughs> this has been every week. I'm just trying to follow which order he's going in. And there's no rhyme or reason. That's that's actually the the the, the truth of the matter when I when I decide which ones we want to run through. I, I always I don't like going out with a whimper, so I guess I always put something at the end. But let's start off with this one because Arkansas is a three and a half point favorite. The over under I have 1.5 mentions of Bo Nix's spike last year. Everybody remembers, of course, the infamous backward spike that was incorrectly called SEC officiating the Twitter account that's everybody knows is just the best place for truth and reasoning and transparency. Mm-hmm. Uh, basically waited, what, like, I don't know, 30 seconds to respond after the game to say, oh yeah, wrong call was made. Uh, I'm not the guy who blames officiating for losses, but let's be honest here. Our 
Arkansas got screwed last year. Let's call it what it is. And they haven't forgot about it. Knicks had this backward spike trailing by one with 30 seconds left in a game and it was called incorrectly. It, Pretty cut and dry. I'm gonna I'm gonna give them credit though because officiating Bo Nix is kind of like officiating James Harden. You're gonna see two to three things a game that you've never seen before, mm. and you don't True. know what to do in those moments as a referee. So like I'm sure they were walking out of the tunnel like ah we screwed that one up. Yep, you have to just know that in those moments. So revenge game for Arkansas, absolutely bounce back game for Arkansas. I you better believe it. Hogs are suddenly in danger of losing three straight. It was not long ago we're talking about this team being undefeated and what is the upside. Welcome to life in the SEC West because there are some Hog fans, I'm not saying all, but there are some who are having some flashbacks to last year. After six games in 2020, year one in the Sam Pittman era, the defense fell apart. Some are worried that it already fell apart after four games. And yeah, you can kind of go either way on that. But the last two against Georgia and Ole Miss have been pretty ugly. In those two games, Hogs have allowed nearly 300 rushing yards per game. Just could not stop the bleeding in either one of those. So now you've got Jarquez Hunter, you've got Tank Bixby. Go figure that Hunter right now, midway point of the season, he's got more rushing yards than Tank. Did not think we'd say that, but pretty unpredictable year so far. That unpredictable individual stat. Auburn is number four in FBS with over six yards a carry. If you had told Auburn fans that coming into the year, they'd say, let's go. We're in good shape. We're going to be in contention in the SEC West. This is really going to let them know if they're in contention at all, just to keep their head above water, to have one of those five and three in the West type of seasons. But suddenly Arkansas is barely inside the top 100 against the run. That's what two weeks against Georgia and Ole Miss will do to you, essentially. Pivotal, pivotal game for Arkansas. It really is. If you lose this, suddenly reality kind of sets in that this isn't a New Year's Six team and the climb is still there in year two of the Sam Pittman era. But win it, and suddenly you're kind of looking around, you're like, hey, nearly beat a top 15 team on the road, Ole Miss. And the other lone blemish was to world beater Georgia, which everybody loses to Georgia, so don't take any fault in that. Mm-hmm. I think at home, those veteran Arkansas defenders, those are the difference in this game. They show up ready to go, hogs cover, win 28 to 21 type of game. Will, I was thinking about this, and I think uh, I think it was Ty Richardson, our good, our good friend um, in Arkansas, I threw this out there. If the season's ended today, KJ Jefferson is at least in the discussion to be a second team All-SEC quarterback behind Matt Corral, right? Because obviously KJ Jefferson hasn't gone side by side with Bryce Young. And I saw ESPN.com had the midseason All-America team and Bryce Young was the quarterback, which again, I'd still push back on that and I'd say Matt Corral's playing better. Matt Corral's played one fewer games. Take that for what it is. Remember earlier in the year, though, we said Arkansas hadn't had an All-SEC quarterback since Tyler Wilson in 2011. Mm -hmm. I think your boy K.J. Jefferson is kind of heading on his way to that. Yeah, I think that just kind of the hype around Alabama is going to probably boost Bryce Young to that level. I mean, he would have to, like, fall off a cliff, I think. Now, that doesn't mean that I think K.J. Jefferson is even worse than him. I just think that the way things work, you know how media ballots work. We talked about this in the preseason with uh, the, the Georgia receiver that just wasn't going to play. <laughs> and it's with, like, with Pickens, yeah. Pickens, yeah. there we go. It's like, yeah, like uh, that. It's, if you don't know what to do, you just write down Alabama and that, that tends to happen a lot. I think that this is such a such an interesting game too for 
for Pittman and going against another year one coach? Can you take care of business against a team like Auburn, uh, against a team that last year coming into that one, we're like, ah, you know, this is, that was one of those games in 2020 where if you looked at the preseason schedule, you said automatic loss for Arkansas. And then it turned out to be a game that you looked back on. And you're like, well, Arkansas got screwed and they should have been four and six and th set of three and seven. Is this the game where you can kind of not let it be up to chance as well? Arkansas is still figuring out ways to win, still trying to win these close games. They won by double digits against Texas A&M. They won by double digits against Texas. It's different to learn how to win those close football games. Ole Miss, that, that, that play, that, that changed everything. Two point conversion, that's everything's on the line, comes down to this. You love what the offense did, need to see it from the defense this week, but I think Arkansas gets it done. Yeah, I don't have like, I haven't really even done this yet. Maybe maybe with A&M and Arkansas was the first time I did this, but man, I think Arkansas is gonna smack Auburn. I, I could be wrong, mm. man, but like I three and a half for this game? I just, okay, yeah, yeah okay. Georgia's just better than everybody, I get it. That. You love the, you know, cojones by Auburn to go for that two-point conversion against Lane Kiffin. And at the end of the day, yeah, it doesn't work. But if you're going to put up those type of numbers and you're supposed to be this ground-and-pound physical team and the game the game script flips on its head and you're able to catch up to Matt Crowell and Ole Miss, coming off of that game, I just, I mean, it just seems like they're a little bit more physical than Auburn and they have been in their wins. And they can score and they can play a high tempo if they need to. So, like, I don't really see what answers Auburn has for this. You, you touched on their ground game being not super duper effective in the way they imagined in the preseason. This game definitely yeah. is gonna look way different from what we thought. But I mean, if Arkansas's front seven can respond in the way they did earlier this season, this game could get rough for Auburn because I don't see that their offense is even really an SEC play put it together. I mean, even the LSU game was kind of two plays that went their way and the rest of it was pretty, pretty gross. Need Trey Williams on that backside, chasing around Bo Nix. Also very important for Barry Odom's defense to be able to get that. Mm -hmm. Let's go to A&M, number 21 in the country, all of a sudden after beating Alabama. That's just what a <laughs> win against focus. Alabama will do, right? Go from worst team in the SEC West, all of a sudden you're a top 25 team again. They are nine and a half point road favorites at Mizzou. The over-under I have, six mentions of Alabama. Probably a little conservative on that. I always wonder about this. Uh, well, I, I want your take on this. When you get a big emotional win, do you want to go right back and play immediately? Or would you almost rather have a bye week afterwards so that the storyline of your big win can kind of have a few days to breathe before it overshadows your prep into the next game? I can kind of go both ways with that. What would you say? I mean, I would say the third option of playing a team like Mizzou on defense is even better. There you go. <laughs> I think, like, just not even being mean, but the way their defense has been is so bad. If you have this win against Alabama and then you look like, you know, Tech Mobo against the Missouri defense like everyone else has, it's like, uh-oh, A&M's back. Yeah, I can't go both ways on Mizzou having a sorry run defense. You're exactly right about that. And everybody has looked like Tecmo Bo for those younger listeners. And I'm not even technically old enough to really appreciate Tecmo Bowl. But Tecmo Bo Jackson has essentially been every running back against this Mizzou ground game, which ground defense rather, which is still last in the country, uh, even after having a better game against North Texas. That's not saying a whole lot. What's interesting about that though is AM's pass protection was really the area that made significant strides against Alabama. It wasn't the ground game. AM only ran for 94 yards against Bama. And, and I thought the one long run apiece for A Chain and Spiller the week before that against Mississippi State kind of skewed some of those numbers when Mississippi State allowed 178 yards on the ground to AM. But that's kind of part of their deal though. A Chain and Spiller only need that one play, that one little 
seem to make you pay. Ask Tyon Evans about getting that big play against Mizzou. All right, that can happen at a moment's notice. Mizzou is still, as I said, dead last against the run. And AM, though, is only at number 80 in rushing with an average of one rushing touchdown a game. Mizzou, in my opinion, their only chance to win in this one. And, and I, I, I thought this was a, a very a very sneaky game for AM to get upset in the preseason because I thought Mizzou would have a little bit of a better defense. But I, I think that their, their only chance to win at home and to get one of those Heidi Like Me Now games from Mila Drinkwitz, which we talked about coming into the year, he's gonna get one, you know he's gonna get one. But Mizzou's got to jump out to that two-score lead early. Make A&M think that it's hungover, even if it really isn't. Have you ever had that experience before after like a night of drinking where you wake up and you're like, I should be hurting a lot more than I am, so I'm going to do everything a little bit slower today. And then you kind of look around, you're like, I'm actually good. Yeah, I'm actually good. We hydrated well. We did what we were supposed to. We didn't mix up alcohols. We're good. We can figure this out. Responsibility, man. That's what we love to see. Crazy thing. I've heard good things about it. The the, the way Mizzou can, can have a path to victory, let Tyler Beatty get 30 touches and keep your own awful defense off the field while maybe convincing Jimbo that they need Zach Calzada to throw the ball 40 times in this game. That's the other thing. Are we sure? I know he had the last drive after he got his leg rolled up on, but are we sure that Zach Calzada, his knee is going to be all right without that adrenaline coursing through his veins? I don't know. We're, we're I don't not. Know. We, me and my buddies were watching the game, and I was like, I was like, what kind of injury would you have to have to leave the game at this point? Like a torn ACL, basically. And you might still try to get out there. Like you might still try. Yeah. We've heard of quarterbacks playing on torn ACLs before. I'm just, I'm not saying that 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 he's going to be able to overcome everything. But in a weird way, maybe that could actually help A and M stick to the run mm-hmm. in this one. If you know Zach Alzada is going to be hampered a bit because we've talked about the frustration that Jimbo doesn't want to stick with the run a little bit more and how it feels like his offensive line kind of needs that. Whatever the case. Friends don't let friends pick Mizzou to cover the spread. <laughs> Just don't <laughs> at this point of the year. I think AM covers on the road, avoids the hangover talk. But I am fully admitting here, so this is going to sound like a hedge. I'm fully admitting that AM laying an egg and giving Mizzou its first SEC win a week removed from beating Bama would be very peak 2021. Probably going to happen. Yeah. And, and like, real quick on that, it's like, yeah, we talked about, like, they kind of ran out of runway to establish the run game after um, Hayes King went down. And obviously, they couldn't, like, retool the run game in the Bama game, so they just had to go with what what they knew. But it's like, like I said, this is a perfect opportunity for them because, like you said, Calzada's a little bit banged up. You have this atrocious Missouri run defense. It's like, this might actually be what they need to become a balanced football team. I'm, I'm very pro this game for A&M. Yeah, I think AM should be able to, f- to figure some things out offensively. And I-, I like the point that you brought up earlier, the one that's in the middle of not wanting to face a really, really good team right after you have this big emotional victory, but also maybe not wanting to have that buy. Have a team that can get you right and get that confidence back, even you know allows you to overcome one of those slow starts as well, if that's there. All right, well, game that man it's had a lot of twists and turns already this year with the way that it's been breaking down but this this is telling number 20 florida is a 10 and a half point road favorite in death valley the over under i have 10 and a half minutes speaking of 10 and a half uh spent discussing ed odron's future Uh, i'll say this if you are in a production meeting for any future lsu game that subject is getting brought up And, and that's part of this too that I think people say, well, it's some media narrative that Ed Ogeron is, is going to be fired inevitably at season's end. 
you are preparing for LSU not to be in competitive football games moving forward, and you're thinking to yourself, what are we going to talk about? And why in the world is this LSU team looking different than it has maybe at any point in the 21st century in a lot of different ways? And it's a fair thing to talk about. It absolutely is. You're figuring out the right way to talk about it if you're on the broadcast without getting an angry phone call from someone afterwards. I mean, honestly, and I'm shocked that Coach O has a job at this moment. If we're just going to be on, like, we talked about yep. it. Like, we were, you were like, oh, uh, yeah, when you're listening to this podcast, he might be unemployed. And boy, is he still employed. <laughs> He's still employed. And maybe there's the whole, like, Scott Woodward's trying to figure out the right way to do it with cause or, or, or whatever it's going to be. I, I don't know. Um, I, I do think, though, that he is not LSU's coach after this season. I'd be very surprised if, if anything in that regard changed. But uh, there is nothing that suggests LSU is going to wake up off the mat and actually compete in this game. Don't think we're going to see the Undertaker gif. But maybe we will, because that's exactly what we said last year. And hey, don't you know it? Max Johnson comes out slinging. Marco Wilson throws a shoe. LSU drills a field goal through the fog in the swamp. And we're all left wondering what in the world we just saw this year. Eh, I think Florida's defense may be a little bit better prepared for Max Johnson. Again, I said this in the preseason. I'm going to circle back to this. I want to be on the record that if Todd Grantham insists on sending corner, blitz and corner blitzes at Max Johnson, my pick of Florida to win this game has an asterisk. Okay? <laughs> Just like we said for Joe Milton, if Joe Milton's going to be the starter over Hendon Hooker, no, I want that's no part of That's outside of my no, control. No, no. Yeah, that's just nope. that's shooting yourself in the kneecap at that point. Come on. There are, there are certain factors that have to contribute to something like that happening. But I do think that all week, Todd Grantham is basically going to be the Jack Nicholson gif, just violently nodding. Yep. You, you've seen it before. Attacking this offensive line is probably what's going to keep Todd Grantham up at night and he's just going to be thinking about new ways to do it and he's going to be so excited i can see the evil look on his face right now lsu's decimated in so many ways Keishon butte out for the year unfortunately add eli ricks to that he is out for the year the stud corner we found that out on wednesday including Derek stingley that is five defensive starters who are going to be out against florida casey forgot florida Number one, non-service academy rushing attack in America. Respect the troops. We do. <laughs> Absolutely. That's why we have to include the non-service academy part. They are in a category to, to themselves. That's exactly what you shouldn't want to see in this matchup if you're LSU. But then again, Will, what did we talk about last year? Florida had the number one passing offense in the country, and LSU had the worst passing defense in America. And who won the football game in Gainesville? LSU sure won that football game, Connor. Well, I want you to do something here. Oh, God. I'm going to put you on the spot. Can you describe a path for LSU to win this game without mentioning Dan Mullen or saying the Florida coach? <laughs> Can I mention Todd Grant? <laughs> no, I mean, it's this easy, man. I'll allow it. It's, 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 it's this easy, man. It's, uh... So... We need to sign new linebackers, and they need to start practicing today. Uh. Okay, so are we talking transfer portal, or are we talking five-star recruits who are going to be maybe signed for the, the 2022 class? Um, it would be transfer portal. Yeah, I was, I was joking about that in one of our LSU chats. I don't know if you've seen uh, the Shay Dixon tweet of, like, everybody LSU has, like, either missing or hasn't played yet. Or, like, Sage Ryan might just be on one of those moon blimps. 
where <laughs> that all the rich people are going on. I don't know where Sage Ryan is. I'm going to put out like a missing persons report on him because seems like that this is kind of the moment that he needs to show up because if he's healthy, because boy, do we need him. But yeah, I mean, it's as, it's as simple as stopping the run. LSU's defensive line has been decimated, but sadly, I, I trust them more than our DBs. So it's like, yeah, I mean, the, it's not like I would trust this LSU team to beat this Florida team over last Florida team because Chikau Trask on a field day with this specific defense with, I mean, freshmen and walk-ons playing DB. Hopefully some of the encouraging things we've seen kind of out of the linebackers work, but that's all I got for you. LSU, I, I would not, I would, I would bet on Florida in this game if I was y'all. If Kentucky can follow the blueprint to beat LSU like that, then certainly one would think that Florida is more than capable of doing it. Yep. And Florida's, Florida's ground game is really good. It, it is. It absolutely is. Even though Anthony Richardson is no longer averaging like 23 yards a touch. No, oh, that Florida's guy, ground game. That guy's going to be running through my nightmares. I can already tell. He's going to have one like 80-yard run where one of LSU's linebackers is just looking at the popcorn stand. And, oh, there he goes. Oh. <laughs> is it going to be... Is it going to be Anthony Richardson running away from an LSU DB like Pat P? Is oh, that going to happen? I mean, that's so the disrespectful to that LSU team who is full of good players. Sorry. Good point. All right, fair enough. We'll strike that for the record. I'm going to stick with, with logic here and say that Ogeron digs his grave a little bit deeper, and LSU loses for the third week in a row. Crap, I wish I knew that stat of the last time that LSU lost three consecutive games. Gosh. Does that happen in the 21st century? This is a dumb brain moment. I should know. No, that. you're good. I mean, the only time, because we've talked about how, how many times they've had eight win seasons. I mean, maybe, maybe, maybe it happened in 08, but honestly, like, Coach O has been really weirdly good after losses. So, like, he definitely. 14 and 1 yeah. before, last, before the Kentucky game. Yeah. yeah. So, like, three in a row is kind of unheard of. Yeah. I mean, usually it was like Alabama and then Arkansas, and then they would get to play AM and they would get right every year. But yeah. I'm going to hedge. I, I'm going to hedge and say Florida wins. But uh, I'm going to say that LSU is going to get a backdoor cover. Okay. And Florida wins 31 to 24 just because this game is never, it's never, it's never lopsided, mm-hmm. ever. I mean, even 2019, that game, Kyle Trask getting what is like third career start in Death Valley and looked really good against an all world LSU team last year. It just kind of defied logic. I'm just going to say this game is going to, cosmic forces are going to allow this game to somehow stay close. I'm, just always yeah, I'm rooting for uh, the voodoo and the hoodoo because that's all we got right now, Connor. Exactly. Exactly, man. There's going to be a lot of voodoo needed in Stark Vegas if Alabama's going to lose a second consecutive game. Bama sitting there as a 17 and a half point favorite on the road. The over-under I have for this one is three mentions slash stat graphics of Nick Saban after a regular season loss. Now, remember this as well. Yep. Greg McElroy, Joe Tessitore, they're on the call. So you know that's coming. McElroy is going to dig real deep into some 2010 stuff mm-hmm. about coming off of losses and all that. I've got the numbers, though, the relevant numbers here for this discussion. So since 2008, since Bama has become Bama, there are five instances in which Bama lost a regular season game and then they had to come back and play an SEC opponent the following week. So we're essentially getting rid of bowl games, SEC championships, or coming off of a loss and then facing a cupcake. So we're trying to simulate what it's going to look like for Bama in this exact spot, albeit with a very different roster. So you had five of those instances, like I said, three of those games, they're all wins by the way, of course, three of those five games were against Mississippi State. 
which is weird. Very, very weird. I don't know how that happens, because it's all like different opponents that it's kind of happened to, but for whatever reason, Mississippi State just ends up getting to face Bama after a loss. Mm -hmm. Don't know why. That is that is classic Mississippi State slash Dan Mullen, where it's like, we're just having the, oh no. Oh, okay. You get angry Nick Saban, who's already like pre-thrown his headset several times. It's like, don't even bother. So like, you know what I'm saying? Like, not to, not to besmirch anyone, but it's like, there is nothing worse than off of a loss Alabama, where it's like, you know that week of practice has been hell. It's just a tough scene for whoever is in the way of that freight train. Okay, so th that's a good point. And when I when I was looking up some of this stuff, I was expecting it to be Alabama's average margin of victory coming off of, of a loss in those spots would be 40 mm -hmm. or something like that, right? 16.4. Yeah. Not, not crazy. And so that spread, you look at that, 17 and a half. And against Mississippi State, this is kind of standard right now for a relatively atypical situation that we're talking about here. That is an Alabama regular season loss that isn't the Iron Bowl where they'd have extra week or an extra week to prep or whatever. We've seen, though, a lot of accountability from Alabama players this week. Nobody made any excuses or anything like that. I thought Will, Will Anderson, the message that he sent to his teammates, he said, wasn't taken seriously. He had this long, um, I don't know who timed this out, but they counted. It was a 12-second pause during his presser this week. Remember, like when he's asked about some of the issues that they face against AM. That's a second-year guy. <laughs> and I know we talk about Will Anderson as, a, as an All-American, and he has done things to absolutely be in that conversation. I'm pretty sure ESPN.com had him on that All-America team uh, at the midway point of the season. But that's his first ever loss at Alabama. Jeez, man, must be nice. And that guy's that guy's already getting after it like that. I think that's a good sign. Allowing Zach Calzada to do that to your defense, that should be a reality check moment because if it's not, Will Rogers is capable of doing some things. He is, and he's figuring some things out in the air raid, how to not get greedy and take that unnecessary risk into double coverage just because, I don't know, it seems like he gets bored at times, and I don't necessarily blame him because if I was throwing four and five yard passes all day and I had to do it 60 times, I too would get bored. But go figure that Mississippi State handled Zach Calzada better than Alabama did. And it was a one week difference here that we're talking about. Same exact venue as well. What I think is becoming a head scratching issue, and we talked about this the other day, but I think it's weird that Alabama at the midway point is still struggling with the chunk plays. Mm -hmm. Like they don't have that step on your throat, humiliate you type of gear. And I thought they had it based on what we saw against Miami and that play where Jameson Williams gets separation and Bryce Young has the long pass that he throws from his own end zone. I thought we were going to see more stuff like that. Surprise, that's just Miami football. <laughs> it is. It kind of is. Yeah, Manny Diaz just having one of those years where he's going to allow that to anybody. Um, look, I've been saying for a while, I just don't think John Mechie's that dude. I don't think he's going to all of a sudden turn into that dude. And, and Jameson Williams is going to have his moments, but I still question. I don't, I don't necessarily think he's like a number one guy for an elite passing game this guy wasn't going to start at Ohio State in a very crowded receiver room of course and not to take away from his production because he's been good but when you're looking for that game changer I just don't know that he is that that guy this stat blew me away Will I tweeted this out earlier so apologies if you've already seen this 
found this on cfbstats.com. Great resource. If you don't use cfbstats.com, way, way better than the NCAA website for stats, which sometimes will take like three days to update. <laughs> I hate that. It's because like, they can't pay their laborers, Connor. Exactly. Hey, they're overloaded right now. Thanks, NCAA, <laughs> for trying. Through six games so far, Alabama is ranked number 82 in the country with plays of 30 yards or more. That is number 12 out of 14 SEC teams ahead of only Vandy and, ironically enough, Mississippi State, who faces nothing but drop eight coverage. Mm -hmm. That is a problem. That's, that's an issue for Alabama right now. And they're just not forcing those coverage busts. And look, Brian Robinson, he's excellent. And he's not the reason that they lost that football game by any stretch of the imagination. So I don't want to take away from that. He's extraordinary. But he's not a home run hitter in the ground game the way that Najee could be at points, right? Mm-hmm. And Robinson doesn't have a run of 30 yards yet at the midway point. As good as he's been, that's just not been his game. So again, that's not specifically like he's the reason that they lost that game. But what AM showed was that Alabama is putting too much pressure on its offense to have these long scoring drives. And so even a prolific group with a smart, dangerous quarterback like Bryce Young is being put in some tough spots. I wonder what Stark Vegas will be like knowing that Alabama's fresh off a loss. And not just a loss, but a loss to an unranked team that MSU already beat. If there was ever a time for Alabama to have one of those punch you in the mouth touchdowns on the second play from scrimmage, this game is it. They need that badly to take that crowd out of it. Don't let another SEC West team think that all of a sudden you're on the ropes against them. I'm gonna say that Mississippi State's defense puts up a good fight here. Keeps it within two touchdowns, but Bama wins 31 to 17. Did I just, Will, did I just do something really stupid by saying Alabama won't cover coming off a loss? Oh, well, see, Con, this is why it's good to have you on the pod because you're a big data guy, and I was just out here assuming that, uh, like I said, they were winning by 60 points after these losses. So the fact that that, you know, the spread is actually higher than their average margin of victory, very interesting. Um, No, I don't think that's dumb. I mean, I do think that. Man, I love Mike Leach so much, man. It's just the fact that that guy could exist and beat Texas A&M and take them out of the West race and then you know play Alabama. You don't know what's going to happen. Let me ask you this question really quickly. I should have interrupted you earlier, but I wanted to get a little bit more context. So Will Anderson has three sacks on the year. Uh, he's yet to have a multi-sack game. Playing against the run defense has been great, though. Yeah, I'm not. Listen, I'm specifically talking sacks yeah. because we're playing. You know, they're, yep. they're playing Mississippi State this week. W- what would you say his over/under number for sacks would be this week? Do you think this is the game where he really like? gets off the edge and starts like establishing dominance as a pass rusher. Yeah, and his pass rushing grades on, on PFF, I know have not been particularly good this year. That's That's been kind of a, a, a surprise, but he's been so extraordinary against the run. I'd say you probably set the over-under at one and a half, and then I would expect him to get at least one, and getting two in this game could be pivotal. Yeah. Alabama's front should have success. Yeah. Mississippi State's offensive line is still not a world beater, and I don't think they're ever really going to be. So you're right. This should theoretically on paper be a breakout type of game for you, but then again, shouldn't Alabama's front had a better week against AM, who was dealing with all sorts of offensive line continuity issues of its own? I don't know. I really don't know. Yeah, I don't know if there's ever been a game. I mean, maybe maybe the, the championship game with Clemson and Bama with Tua, but I don't know if there's ever been a game that I immediately woke up the next day and was like, did that 
Did that happen? That like, I had to, like, go back and watch parts of the game so I could, like, mentally realign my dumb brain with what happened. Because, yeah, like, anyway, point being, I, I do think it's going to be a big Will Anderson game for them. And, and Mississippi State, like we were talking about bounce back games, they're kind of a perfect game if you want to fine-tune your pass defense specifically because, boy, will they give you every route tree, every screen pass. And it's like, okay, we can just use this as a practice for the last, the back half of our SEC schedule because, you know, Mike Leach is, he'll invent plays on the fly. He's that type of dude. Get Malachi Moore back coming off of the targeting penalty as well. Could mm-hmm. be important for Alabama to have him on this day. Let's go to the game of the week. Vandy, South Carolina. <laughs> South Carolina. This line, dog. This, uh, this line is, I can't figure out who this line is more disrespectful to. It's just a disrespect to football. South Carolina is an 18 and a half point favorite. I got some numbers for it. The over-under Please. I have, uh, six rushing touchdowns scored in this game. Why do I bring that up? Why do I never just bring up numbers randomly? Actually, I do sometimes. But in this case, I'm not bringing it up randomly. These teams have a combined six rushing scores all year. That is 422 carries, and only six of them have reached pay dirt. That's almost hard to do. Like, one out of every 70 carries goes for a touchdown. That's it. They do, however both rank in the bottom half of FBS defending the run. So it's your classic something's got to give game in the reverse way. Connor, I will say this. We talk about good takes and bad takes all the time out here, and please don't listen to what we said about AM Alabama. But uh, the Kevin Harris slander train and the C Rod first team all SEC in tandem seem like two of the smartest things you've ever said. Because, yeah, Kevin Harris wasn't even leading his team in rushing yards until like last week. Uh, not to like, not to slander him or them. They're obviously going through a lot, you know, that, that, that's fine. But yeah, man, this is not, that's a shocking stat. If you look preseason, that was the one part of their team oh, yeah. that. It's shocking to see that Kevin Harris, through six games, and I know he had the back injury. I know that he was working through that in, in fall camp, a little bit of a slow start. Sits the first game, I believe. I think he's just sat the one game that he was on a little bit more of a snap count. His longest carry of the season is 13 yards. That's crazy, I'm, yeah. I'm gonna say he exceeds that against Vandy. His, his best rushing day of the season, 61 yards. I'm also gonna say that he exceeds that against Vandy. Both of those came last week against Tennessee. So maybe, I don't know, things are looking up for Kevin Harris. I don't know though. South Carolina fans are really frustrated with the offensive line. Luke Doty is frustrated that the Gamecocks can't finish drives and he is right. Gamecocks are number 12 in the SEC in TD percentage in the red zone. Parker White is basically the only reason, the ageless Parker White, he is the only reason that South Carolina is middle of the pack in red zone conversion percentage. Otherwise they'd be way, way on the back end. Marcus Satterfield, needs a bounce back game. You get criticized for the play calling against Tennessee. You've got a prime opportunity to get right against Vandy. There are not going to be more favorable SEC matchups during your entire time at South Carolina than the one that you will face this week. If you lay an egg here, you're staring at a one and done season. We've talked about that with Steve Wilkes, the defensive coordinator at Mizzou. Could very well be a similar situation for the South Carolina OC if he does not turn things around in a hurry. I think we see South Carolina put some things together offensively, and it's a 35 to 14 win, which, Will, why would that be significant? People are asking. Yes, I certainly am at this very moment. 
that would be the first time that South Carolina scored 31 points at home ah. against an FBS team since 2018. Remember that stat? And remember how we said that Michael Skarnecchia was the last quarterback to accomplish that for South Carolina after I tweeted that a few weeks ago. And I'm so upset that he responded after we recorded. He responded to that tweet by saying, could have had a couple more 31 point games in 2018. Savage. <laughs> Love Michael Skarnicki and just going back in the record book and being like, hey, here's why we're ass. It's like, you know what? I don't even disagree. Couldn't really gone worse. Jake Bentley probably wasn't the answer that year. Might have had a point. Who knows? Not to do we'll like the, the Jake Bentley thing, but man, that's a guy that just looked, you know, people forget, missed his senior prom. And he like had the brightest future of the world. And he just got must man. He just like, I feel so bad for him because he looked so good and he stayed there forever and just didn't get any better. And it's like, ah. There, there are going to be a lot of tales told about the quarterbacks who were must-champed. Yep. And there, there were so many, uh, it, not just at South Carolina, but Florida as well. One day, maybe that's the podcast that we need to do. Must-champed, an investigative report. <laughs> must-champed, and then, yeah, with the apostrophe D in there. And then we'll talk to all of these guys that, that had to play for a Will Must-champ coach team, play quarterback for a Will Must-champ coach team. Ole Miss. Tennessee, Ole Miss two and a half point favorite in Knoxville. The over-under, of course, 16 mentions of Lane Kiffin being back in Knoxville. In case you haven't heard, four, four quarter? Ah, actually, you know what? I'm gonna pivot because I'm gonna pivot on my own over-under because if it was Joe Tess on the call, absolutely, <laughs> but it's not. It is, uh, it's Tom Hart. It's our guys, Tom, Jordan, and Cole. I am so fired up for this one. One of my favorite games on the year coming in has only gotten better, I would argue. And honestly, it's not really just about the lane reunion because we're gonna forget about some of that stuff once the game actually starts. What's more relevant is the Josh Heupel, Jeff Levy reunion. Yes, Will, sir. This is your UCF reunion. I got a question <laughs> for you. What would your boy Brady say about this take? Jeff Levy leaving Heupel for Kiffin was the reason that UCF went six and four in 2020. Honestly, that's, it's impressive if you didn't read that somewhere because that's like a pretty big brain theory of UCF Twitter that like Levy was actually the mastermind behind Josh Heupel. He was a guy that a lot of guys wanted to get the, the job before Gus got the job and everybody was happy with Gus obviously, but he was like the front runner before Gus got hired. People love Levy, man. Le we love Levy. Uh, I'm, I'm fired up about this game for that reason because it's like, I, both of these guys are obviously premier offensive minds. I feel like you could say that about Heupel so far at Tennessee. He's done great things, especially in the last couple weeks. And so, yeah, it's going to be great to see these two guys that, you know, have kind of gone their separate ways after being, you know, coaches together. Levy started under Frost and to kind of see how their offenses have evolved over time. Talk about those offenses. The numbers bear it out so far. FBS ranks for these offenses. Scoring offense, Ole Miss number four, Tennessee number seven. Rushing offense, Ole Miss number five, Tennessee number six. Passing offense, Ole Miss number 19. Tennessee only at number 81, but the efficiency is a lot better than what that would indicate. But Time that's the Joe Milton asterisk right there. Exactly, good point, very good point. Time of possession, maybe the most telling stat, Ole Miss, 
number 123. Tennessee, number 126. Complimentary football, goodbye. See you later. <laughs> this, ain't, this ain't your ball game. This is all gas, no breaks bowl. It's going to be awesome. I've sort of been saying all week, like, oh, you know, the team who can actually handle tempo is going to win. But then I kind of corrected myself because Arkansas will miss. Both teams who obviously play with a ton of tempo. Kendall Bryles, very similar offensive style with the, Bra the Baylor principles. They, they played with a lot of tempo in that game. Ole Miss won, but they won even though they allowed 676 yards of offense. So <laughs> I don't really think you can say it definitively that whoever handles tempo is going to win. So what is the key? I think if I'm trying to figure out the situation where a team could be at the biggest disadvantage, it would be Ole Miss getting out to a big lead and putting Hendon Hooker in those obvious passing situations. Mm -hmm. Ole Miss would handle a big deficit better than Tennessee would, but that is so much easier said than done. Why? Because with Hooker as the starter, the Vols are plus 70 in the first quarter in four games. That's an average of 17 and a half points a game. Seems pretty good. Some would argue the best quarterback available. I don't know. Some are saying. Seems elite. Some would say. You never know. No lead should be safe in this one. Ole Miss just played in the highest scoring SEC game of the year. I wouldn't be surprised if that happened again. The over under for total points in this one is 82 and a half. So with that line, two and a half point spread, Ole Miss is favored. That's essentially saying Ole Miss wins 42 and a half to 40, um, which would be insane. It would be awesome. I'm taking Ole Miss to make a few more plays and win and cover and maybe a one touchdown type of thriller in Knoxville. Will, I, you've been smiling this entire time I've been talking about this game. I know you're fired up for this one. I love this so much. I love Lane Kiffin. I just, I like, there's the whole other side of like me wanting to be the get off my lawn guy about like SEC defenses. This is the good part of it. This is like the, yes. we know, it, like this game is going to be electric. And so many of both of these teams games go this way where it's like, oh, like this is going to be like, it's the time of possession thing. It's if you're, if your offense is hitting, it's the most beautiful thing in the world. If it's not hitting, it's terrible. But the yeah. thing is, both of these teams are in the same game. So, like, they can't both just be on offense the whole game. Like, somebody has to play defense. So, yeah, like, I, I don't know. Like, these types of games, you know, we talked about Leach. We talked about there's a couple other guys in the SEC that are, like, running this style. It's like, man, like, it's just, it, it's, I, you know, the vanilla of, like, back in the day, you know, run the football, son, doesn't matter. Like, it's, it's great to see this style evolving and developing an identity in this specific matchup is really going to show, you know, what the new SEC could look like, even in a couple of years when wide open football becomes a little bit more common. This is a really nerdy thing, but I bet Ole Miss is really bummed out that it had such an early bye week this year because after facing Tennessee and Arkansas with the way that they run their offenses, I'm sure there are a lot of those Ole Miss defenders who are going to be like, man, just give us a break. Just give us a break. Let's, let's <laughs> Not chill. coming, buddy. If right. you guys keep scoring like yeah. this, you need to talk yeah. to Matt Corral. <laughs> That's who you need to talk to. Yeah, Matt Corral, uh, can you maybe not have 75-yard touchdown passes? Just like, you know, just kind of underthrow one of these guys one time just so that you can make it a two-play drive instead of a one-play drive. You know, just throwing it out there. All right, SEC East Championship. Number 11, Kentucky, on the road. Number one, Georgia. This tells you a lot about the gap in college football, or at least the perceived gap in college football. Georgia's a 21 and a half point favorite, which is down a couple points actually from what it was. I believe it opened at 24 and a half, or if it didn't open at 24 and a half, that was maybe a couple weeks ago. The over-under I have, pretty simple. One and a half Kentucky offensive touchdowns. Man. Yeah. 
that's that's not very much. Um, we're we're still waiting on the first team to score two touchdowns, like two offensive touchdowns against Georgia. I'm sticking with this belief that getting two offensive touchdowns against Georgia is worth celebrating. And in fact, if Liam Cohen, if he dials up two offensive touchdowns on Saturday night, he slash me might be the new favorite for the Broyles Award. He slash me. <laughs> Gotta throw that one into existence. And uh, shameless plug. Go check out my story on Liam and Wandell Robinson becoming a revelation in Lexington over on SaturdayDownSouth.com. A lot of fun to be able to put that one together. Did I tell you what John said about you and Liam Cohen? I don't think I did. Oh, no. He goes, it, without even like props, he goes, he looks like if Connor drove an F-150. <laughs> I like that. Oh, I haven't heard that. That's a very original take. I can see that. He's definitely a lot bigger that, than I am. Like different, d- d- definitely, we're not going to get walking down the street if you're walking behind one of us. That That's where the comparison stops. Right? Very, very different. He's a former quarterback. I um, I, I just watch quarterbacks. Anyway, uh, this, is, this is a tough matchup, though, for Kentucky's offense in a lot of ways. And, and I love C-Rod. Don't tell Ed Odron, but C-Rod is the SEC's leading rusher. And... Um, C-Rod's actually mad at Will Levis right now, not for anything other than the fact that Will Levis hurled the defender before C-Rod did, even though C-Rod has been trying to do that for the last two years. Shout out to KSR for that clip. <laughs> C-Rod ain't hurdling a defender against Georgia. Not happening. Not the day for, for an attempt of that nature. I don't know if he's getting 100 on him like he did last year either. He is fifth in the country in rushing. He's on pace to break Kentucky's single season mark of 1,600 yards. He's awesome. He's that dude. So for everyone, though, who says Georgia's offense hasn't played anyone yet, it'll be telling to see how they handle Chris Rodriguez and Wondell Robinson, both of whom are leading the SEC in their respective yardage categories. I try to play devil's advocate here because if I'm a Kentucky fan, I look at last year, 14-3 game, I say, hey, our offense is more dynamic than it was in 2020. So why is it assumed that we won't score? Uh, or, you know, even on the other side, why is it assumed that George's offense with Stetson Bennett, whom I'm assuming will still be the starter and JT Daniels is not going to be back from the lat injury. Uh, why is it assumed that George's offense is going to score more against an improved Kentucky defense? And those are fair points. And from the Kentucky side, if the Cats can pull off a miracle here, we're going to look back and be like, why didn't we see that? That was pretty dumb of us. But I think the difference is that Stetson Bennett can actually execute the offense that Todd Munkin wants to run, and he couldn't last year. The downfield shots are there. They absolutely are. And both of, those, both of these teams would love to be able to utilize some play action. They, they can have guys going under center. It's not going to be all shotgun in this one. We're going to see a little bit of that. But can you really expect a clean pocket to step into running play action against this Georgia defense? Because if I'm Will Levis, every single time I go into play action, I'm going to assume that Nicobe Dean is going to be in my grill. I'm, I'm just going to assume that that's going to happen. Somebody will. I, I don't think that necessarily is going to be the way that it plays out for Kentucky all day. But I think not having Josh Ali is going to hurt Kentucky this week more than it did last week. Think about this. And Will, then I, then I want to get you to, to fire off on, on, a, on a question I have. Think about how much Georgia has been leading in games this year. And this kind of goes back to the Dan Mullen thing last where when I asked him at ICC Media Days about why his defense really struggled. And he's like, oh, you know, if we kind of look at, you know, we were leading a certain amount in games and why I thought that was BS that he came back and said that. Listen, to his this credit, is, he's continued to think that way. You just love to see that. Just love it. Yeah, thanks, Dan. Really, really transparent. A lot of accountability, for sure. 
Georgia has only trailed for five minutes and 24 seconds in 360 minutes of football this year. And that was and it was Clemson? No, it was Auburn having the 3-0 oh, lead in the first quarter. Oh, wow. It was uh, so all that? That. That's it. Wow. That's, so consider that. File that away. And now also process the fact that Georgia has the number one pass defense in America. All right? Everybody's passing against Georgia. They're allowing five yards of attempt. They're allowing 50% completion percentage. That's why this doesn't bode well for Kentucky to keep it particularly close. And I'm actually picking Kentucky to cover plus 21 and a half, but I still have Georgia winning 27 to seven. And if you're wondering at home, who then is going to score the offensive touchdown for Kentucky? Gotta be Wandale or it's gotta be C-Rod, right? Of course, I'll actually go with Cavassier Smoke scoring a third quarter touchdown after Kentucky's defense gets a turnover and a short field. So the question I have for you, Will, is Kentucky the toughest challenge that Georgia will face in the remaining half of the schedule? The remaining half of the schedule, I'll read it off for you right here. Florida and Jacksonville. You've got a home game against Mizzou at Tennessee, Charleston Southern, and then you're at Georgia Tech. So basically the question is, is a home game against Kentucky more challenging than a neutral site game against Florida or a road game at Tennessee? Oh, that's a good question. Man, um, I mean, so like we talked about this last week, but like Kentucky's style is just so similar to Georgia's. And, and that's what's mm -hmm. tough about that is you just can't out physical Georgia. They're just huge, these five-star recruits. Oh gosh, I mean, like, okay, so like take the talent and the record and everything. Tennessee's style should match up the best against Georgia because they're able to spread the ball out. Now Tennessee's personnel and Tennessee where they're at as far as the program doesn't really match up that way, but I mean, okay, so Kentucky pretty well. I mean, maybe they didn't dominate Florida, but they pretty handedly beat Florida. Like, Florida was, like, coming well, back. Well, total yards. Well, so. you're right. You know, it's hard to say, but in terms of points that are on the scoreboard, they were really mm. coming back at the end of that game, Florida. Like, it, like, like Kentucky went up on them and, and kind of, like, jumped all over them. So, I would have to give it to Kentucky um, just based on that. Let me, before, I, before we go off on that, let me ask you this question really quick, though. Would you say this Kentucky? It's gonna be it's gonna be hard to tell till after this Georgia game, weirdly enough. But would you say this Kentucky team is better than the 2018 Kentucky team? Because that's the standard that's by. Great question, great question, and time time is really gonna tell. I, I think right now, like who would win on a neutral site? And I'm gonna piss off Cash by saying this, <laughs> <laughs> but I actually I, I do think it's a shade better. I think it's a shade better because while this team does not have a Josh Allen, and that's, mm -hmm. that's big, they also do not have the offensive versatility. Wanda Robinson decommitted from Kentucky after he saw what this Kentucky offense did in a like 14 to seven game against Vandy. All right, that was in 2018. It's in 2018, so keep that in mind. Yep. This team can beat you in a couple of different ways, and I think I would rather take that Though it is so hard because that Kentucky defense in 2018 was special. Yep. And I would love to see that matchup of how Kentucky's 2018 defense would match up against this 2021 team. I don't know what side Josh Ali would play for. <laughs> We'd have to figure that out. Darian Kennard, you're going to have to figure out which side you want to play on. For. That's like those all-time um, <laughs> NBA rosters in 2K. It's like just two right. of them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But, but like, so Kentucky has had those tough moments that year. That, you know, the Tennessee loss was a, 
obviously was brutal for them. Um, but I, I think I'd maybe give it to 2021. Um, and I did not think I would say that coming into this year. But great question. Something to keep in mind moving forward, too. Yeah, I mean, you're basically picking Will Levis over Josh Allen in that way because, I mean, the quarterback position was kind of the weaker one of the weaker points of 2018. And I'll say that I said that to say this. This is probably the best Georgia team we've seen. I think that's fair to say. I, I think that, I mean, the 2017 team was very special. I'm not taking anything away from that. You know, freshman Jake Fromm was the best Jake Fromm we probably saw. But considering they just haven't needed to play a quarterback so far, it really, like, when JT Daniels gets back healthy, whatever that is, it seems like just depth-wise, leadership-wise. So point being, this game could be a laugher, and Kentucky could still be one of their best teams, I mean, this century, you know what I'm saying? But Georgia could just be that much better, and it wouldn't really mean anything. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, and I wrote that exact column this week, by the way, about Georgia, about how I think 2021 Georgia is built better to win a national championship than 2017. Mm -hmm. And part of that is actually competition too. And I was talking about this with my brother. If you actually look at the quarterbacks right now that are sitting there in the top eight in terms of, of nationally in college football, it's so different than what we were talking about a couple years ago, mm -hmm. or three years ago, or four years ago. And you look at some of these these potential semifinal matchups, and you're like, wait a minute, Spencer Petras gonna play in a semifinal game? Like, I don't know about that. <laughs> Caleb Williams gonna come in and play. Uh, maybe he can be this year's version of like 2017 Tua, mm -hmm. not to scare Georgia fans about that or anything like that, but I, you just don't know. So I think that's, th that's something that could factor into all those different things, but should be a tough test for Georgia's defense. I'll say that and keep that in mind because if they, if they shut them out, man, that is, that is no small feat to do something like that. Lock of the week. I took an L last week for my Maryland pick. It did not work, but that's all right. I'm making a rule. No more picking Big Ten games. I'm going to stay away because I've been burned too much this year. Maybe I just don't have a good feel for the conference that I grew up in, but I'm going to stay away from the Big Ten. I'm, I'm going to do it. I like that I'm this like lock of the week isn't three pages this time. You're, you're a right. it's not. You haven't told like a tale of, uh, uh, what's it called, a, an epic poem about how you're going to get to your lock yeah, of the week. Right? Like, I'm not doing, hey, I'm not doing four picks, but if I were doing four picks, this is what I would do. Uh, yeah, the one that I picked did not work out. We're still though making money, four and three on the year. I'm gonna go with Oklahoma minus 13 and a half against TCU. And I sort of felt nauseous doing this because Sooners obviously haven't lived up to expectations. Weird week so far in Norman. If you haven't seen yep. kind of the storyline with the, the, the student newspaper reporting that Caleb Williams was taking the number one steps. They talked to Spencer Rattler's dad. And then Lincoln Riley is like, no media availability this week. How dare you do journalism? <laughs> Yeah, how dare you actually try and do your job and, and report. So based on that, and thank you to the Oklahoma Daily for doing the Lord's work and trying to figure out if Spencer Rattler is going to be starting quarterback. It looks like Caleb Williams is going to be the guy, first career start for him. I think that sort of gives Oklahoma the shot of life that it needs, just like it did against Texas. TCU isn't very good outside of Zach Evans at tailback. And they didn't really have to throw against Texas Tech when they smoked them last week. This Oklahoma run defense is actually really good. I know we've talked about, oh, Oklahoma's defense, maybe they're a fraud. They had the bad game against Tulane. They're 11 in the country against the run, which not bad at all for them. I think we finally Best see that exhale. been in decades, probably. Been a long time. Alex Grinch is doing some fine things there despite the quarterback issues that they've had so far. I think we finally see some, that, some of that like exhale type feeling from Oklahoma. And after this week, 
maybe my comp about them being 2014 Florida State kind of fades because they actually beat a power five team by more than a touchdown. Could happen, maybe, we'll see. All right, let's go to our interviews. First, John Talty, SEC insider from AL.com. He's gonna talk some SEC storylines with us, a lot of coaching stuff that we got into. And then Adam Stockton is gonna tell us about his Kentucky 6-0 prediction. So here's John, then Adam. I'm not excited to be joined by a very special guest. It is AL.com's John Talty. John, this is like the STS podcast version of having an Alabama fan on, on Feinbaum, like the Monday after a loss. You had a ton of different angles breaking that down specifically, including what our guy Steven Garcia thought watching Zach Calzada um, was to him and like basically repeating what he did 11 years later. Um, what was the most notable takeaway that you had from Saturday night in College Station. Yeah, I think it's, you know, that was certainly a game that I think it caught a lot of us, uh, you know, by surprise. So I think, you know, for me, I think what it revealed was that, you know, this is a, a flawed Alabama team. I think we kind of knew that already, especially after that Florida game. But I think given how well they played against Ole Miss, I think we kind of, you know, put it outside of our heads. So I think what we realized is that, you know, as I think a lot of us have been talking about in general about this season, it's a lot more up in the air than I think uh, it's been in some previous seasons. We'll see how Georgia fares as they work their way through uh, their schedule. I mean, they, I think they're clearly the top dog right now. But other than that, it feels a lot more, you know, open teams are flawed, even the top teams. And I think Alabama fits into that, you know, kind of pack of teams that you know, has some, some issues. They do some things well. And, you know, now, you know, it's just, there's just not much margin of error. I mean, they have to basically win out if they're going to make it back to the playoff, which would include a win over likely Georgia in the SEC championship game. So I think what I think we're all paying attention to moving forward is just, you know, how does this Alabama team respond and are they able to improve and use this loss as kind of the wake up call they needed? Or it's just one of those, you know, like that South Carolina team that beat Alabama 2010. This is just one of those Alabama teams that just can't really put it together despite a lot of preseason hype and you know, end up with multiple regular season losses. You're really plugged into the, the coaching universe. So I, I want to kind of dig into some of these SEC coaches with you. Let, let's stick with a guy who might have earned himself some money on Saturday night, not Jimbo Fisher. Um, don't think last I checked Twitter, Jimbo Fisher has not earned an additional extension, but we'll kind of wait and see on that. But um, Mike Elko, I'd be surprised if Elko was in College Station at this time next year, especially now after that win with his defense playing the way that it did. But the issue that I continue to bring up is that Elite defensive minds aren't getting power five head coaching gigs anymore. None of the top 10 highest paid defensive coordinators last year got FBS head coaching gigs. What do you make of that trend and what do you think it could mean for Elko? Yeah, and I know that, you know, uh, Mike Elko is, uh, is not in a rush, you know, I think to take just a head coaching job just to take a head coaching job. And I think you kind of what you're hitting on there, too, is that there's so much money now to be an elite defensive coordinator. You know, these guys are making upwards of $2 million at the top level that, you know, for them to jump to a job that in some ways might pay less and is not a ideal fit, you know, they can just have the patience to wait. And I think we saw that with Dave Aranda for a while uh, before he eventually took that Baylor job. But, you know, Elko has been in the mix for some different jobs, was in the mix for the Central Florida job uh, that ultimately went to Gus. He was in the mix for the, the Kansas job and ultimately take, took his name out of the running for that. So I think he's a guy who's going to get 
you know, mentioned for different jobs this cycle. I think it'll be interesting to see what, you know, what opens up that might be of interest to him. But, I mean, I think he's certainly done a very good job with that defense. It's obviously earned him a lot of money. And I think, you know, did some did some things against that Alabama offense that we haven't seen happen too often. So I, I think he, he should be up for more jobs. But, you know, like you're saying, it's just I think we've seen this shift over the last few years where, you know, these ADs, and boosters want the sexy hire. They want the exciting offensive guy. And, you know, that's not Mike Elko. And so even though some of the best, you know, coaches in the game, including Nick Saban, are defensive guys, it's not necessarily what we see the hiring trends. So, you know, he's, his agents, and he, you know, happens to be wrecked by the guys at CAA. I mean, they'll have to, you know, probably sell his story well. But I do think he'll be up for jobs. And I think it's going to just depend on whether he thinks it's the right time for him to, to leave what's a pretty good situation in Texas A&M. And that's the thing that I, I think is fascinating is is the agent aspect of this and, and having to kind of play that up because if you're representing one of these defensive-minded head coaches in this day and age, it just kind of seems like you're having to, to sell why, you know, this guy's worthy of a job when the numbers are so skewed in favor of the offense and defense is making a bit of a comeback this year. So maybe that'll help and maybe that had something to do with it in 2020 with why it was so difficult for some of these defensive minds, probably outside of a Brent Venables to be legitimately considered for head coaching jobs. So maybe that'll kind of even this out a little bit. But I, I did this exercise with Chris Doring a few weeks ago, but I'm curious kind of where you stand on it, given the fact that we have now half of a season to be able to, to base some of these, these opinions on. Of all the SEC assistants, is Jeff Levy the most likely to get a Power 5 head coaching gig at the end of the year? Ooh, that's a good question. You know, I think, you know, the, he would be one of the ones that certainly would be at the top. I think people do, I mean, think he will likely leave, uh, I think, at the end of the, this year, assuming Ole Miss continues to, you know, play well and that offense looks good, which I think we all expect it to. He's certainly one of the names that I think would be at the top of the list. Now, again, if we're going back to the defensive side of things, you know, I think the job that Dan Lanning has done at Georgia has been terrific. Mm. And he's a younger, exciting guy, came very close to getting that Memphis job a couple years ago. He's someone, I think, who could fare very well in terms of interviewing with different places and so I could see you know he might even be a, a, a sexier option than even Mike Elko just kind of based on his background and how I think he would fare in one of those settings but I think those are the guys that kind of stand out you know another defensive guy Barry Odom you know I think he's done a pretty good job I know they just gave up a lot of points to Ole Miss but overall I think he's been you know one of the the better coordinators but yeah I mean I think if you look at Levy's background what they've done offensively the fact that he was certainly you know in very much in the mix for that Central Florida job I think if Gus Malzahn doesn't get in that mix there and ultimately take that job I think Levy could have been the guy at Central Florida and so I think he's going to be a name when people are looking for all right you know how do we how do we get an exciting hire I think Levy's name will will be one of the ones at the top of that list did UCF really take Gus Malzahn over Jeff Levy? Like it was, hey, all things are sitting there, all things are equal, and we just like Gus more than we like Levy. Was it as simple as that, or is there something here that that, that I don't fully process? Because I think for what UCF was trying to do, I get I get why Gus was a was a hire that that made sense in some ways and then others, but I, I kind of wonder. Well, if they're trying to build a different sort of offense, man, they they could have really taken that thing and run with 
Levy with given the personnel that they already had and his impact on that personnel. Was it as simple as, look, Jeff Levy was our quarterback's coach two years ago. We can't just all of a sudden make this guy a head coach when we have a guy who has been to a national championship. Or, or was there something else there that I'm just maybe not picking up on? Yeah, it's a good question. You know, I don't know. I don't know the answer to that. You know, I don't know if there was something more to it as well. And I and I agree with your overall point. I mean, I think one of the biggest issues that I think people had with Gus at Auburn, and ultimately the reason why he no longer has that Auburn job, is that for as creative and you know I think innovative as he was early on in his career offensively, that offense got very stale at the end. You know, people caught up to what they were doing, and I didn't see that level of you know again ingenuity innovation that we saw from him earlier in his career i think what we've seen with with levy and of course you know wayne kiffin gets credit as well there for what they've been able to do i I see you know some innovative things happening molding of different offensive schemes into something that's obviously very difficult to stop and has put up a lot of points and so you know if you were thinking you know long term whose offense might have a better shot to succeed i think you would probably lean levy there but i think it's a mistake that people make all the time in which we reward past performance rather than what we think the future performance will be. And so I think that's yeah. the case there is, you know, Malzahn is, because I think, and if you look back, I mean, when he got let go, I think a lot of people were, you know, especially outside the SEC, you know, footprint, were surprised by that decision given how much money was involved, the fact he didn't have that bad of a year. And so you think, wow, I'm getting a guy who is, you know, beat Nick Saban multiple times and was just Auburn's head coach. Like, why shouldn't I do that? Without necessarily thinking like, is he going to be the guy who's going to help us, you know, take this program to an even higher level than what we've seen with, you know, guys like Scott Frost and, of course, you know, Josh Heupel. Is there anything that Odron can do to save his job? I mean, just win, baby, right? You know, I mean, that's, that's <laughs> what it comes down to. I mean, I don't, I, I don't see it. I think it's, you know, it's one of the – when I talked to people in the industry before the season even started, I mean, that was – that was the one SEC job that anybody really thought could open up outside of, you know, someone leaving like a Mark Stoops or Dan Mullen or something like that, getting a bigger job somewhere else. That was the only job that people really thought outside of, again, a massive scandal, you know, would potentially fire their coach. And that's only increased, I think, the likelihood since the season started. And it's, I think there's multiple reasons. I think it's, you know, I know you were just uh, at their game against Kentucky. I mean, you watch this team and I mean, it does not look like they have full buy-in from the players, uh, it does not seem like that team is you know, competing at the highest level that you would expect. And you know, I've talked to people around the program, and I think you know some boosters and fans and others are are kind of checked out at this point. They don't feel like it's heading in a positive direction. And you couple all of that with the fact that Scott Woodward has a reputation as someone who who likes to swing big. Money's not a factor. He has swung huge money at multiple people in the past. He likes to have those big, sexy hires, and, and Ed Ogeron's not his guy. And so I think you add all those together, and it makes a lot of people in the industry believe that you know, it's getting closer and closer to, to opening up. I mean, it, you look at the schedule, and I just don't see a lot of wins left for LSU, unfortunately. Players are dropping out with injuries. It just, it just doesn't feel like there are a lot of positive factors that could change the current trajectory of that program and, you know, most importantly, Fred Ogeron, his job security at this point. 
I'm gonna squat on this take, and if you want, if you want to steal it, like that's that's totally fine. Just you know, just just make sure you give me credit at the bottom line. Anybody listening to this at home, but Scott Woodward makes bigger splashes than Ham Porter from Sandlot. Like he is ready to do something like that. And you know, you can even go back to the Chris Peterson stuff at Washington, which gets a little bit overlooked down here in the SEC. But I, and I don't think that Chris Peterson would be a name that would be brought up for LSU, though somebody would probably try and make that a thing. I just don't really see that as a fit regionally speaking and kind of where he is with his career, why he left Washington, all those things. But the, the two obvious names that everybody is going to be talking about until it doesn't officially happen is Lane and Joe Brady. Those two. And it's different different backgrounds, of course. We just talk about kind of what's the present, what's the future. Is there maybe kind of a, outside of those two, is there, is there anybody else that we should maybe have our radar on and say, oh, you know what, that guy would be really, really interesting at LSU. Yeah, I mean, I think the, the guy who I think, I mean, I know they just had a loss because of, you know, the quarterback got injured. I mean, I think James Franklin's going to be mentioned for every big job. Now, I think yeah. he, if he were to leave Penn State, I think USC is a much better fit than LSU for him. So I don't necessarily see that as a fit, but I think that's a name that you'll certainly see, you know, bandied about. You know, I think that some of the other guys that were maybe the obvious options in the past, you know, I joked with somebody before the season started, you know, maybe Ed O and Billy Napier should just switch jobs. You know, like I feel like mm. Ed O could do well at Louisiana and I think Billy would do well at LSU. But I don't think that, again, just knowing how Woodward works, I don't think that Napier is an established enough name at this point for him to hire. I mean, if you look at his entire track record, there's and I, I, it's funny. I've actually talked to ads about this in the past. Who you know sometimes kind of poo-poo his hires by basically saying like he doesn't try to project anybody out. Like it's purely proven big name. I'm going to spend a lot of money to get him. I don't care, and I'm getting him. He's not trying to hire somebody where it's like I haven't necessarily seen it, but I think I can see where it could go. I'm going to hire that guy. That's not really how Scott works. So I think you would still have some of that projection with Napier because even though he's obviously coached at a very high level at Alabama and Arizona State, you know, currently at a group of five job. I think that Scott would shoot higher than that. But I do think Billy's not a bad option. I think he's been very patient. He's turned down interest from big-name SEC jobs, including Auburn and Mississippi State. And I think LSU could be one I could see him potentially being interested in jumping for. But I don't know if he's – I don't think he's at a high enough level right now for Scott to go after. So you mentioned, you know, Wayne Kiffin, I think that certainly makes sense to talk to him, entertain whether he'd be interested. You know, there was some, some talk about Wayne in that Auburn job. I don't think it ever really got anywhere, but I could see certainly at a minimum, Wayne probably getting a raise out of it. Joe Brady is really interesting because I think the struggles that LSU has had since he's left, I think only help his case. But, and I'm not nearly as plugged in at the NFL level as I am in college, but it seems like he's done a pretty good job in Carolina. I know they've been missing Christian McCaffrey the last few weeks, but, you know, he's done some some pretty good work already from what I've seen from, you know, Sam Darnold. I'm a Jets fan, and I saw how bad Sam could be at times with the Jets, and he looked a lot better this year. So my question for Joe would be in that job is, like, if I'm him, do I wait another year and get an NFL job? You know, where do I want to be? He seems to be like a little bit more of an NFL guy, especially if he can get a head coaching job. But I mean, if you're LSU, you'd be silly to not at least call and ask, are you interested in what would be the number to, to get it done? Because I think he would come in with a lot of hype and attention um, and certainly a lot of you know excitement given all that he was able to do during that magical 2019 season. 
What's the industry discussion consensus feeling you get about Hugh Freeze? You know, I think he's he's someone that I've always believed is going to get another, you know, bigger job at some point. I don't know where that's going to be. I think I, you know, I think I said this on Fine Bomb at some point. I think it's going to take a unique situation of somebody who you know you have a administration, whether it's president, AD, you know, trustees, boosters, all those important people that is willing to be, take a risk, that's willing to accept some initial backlash to that hire because it's guaranteed to come. I mean, it's not just the personal stuff that we all know about. I mean, it's there were NCA issues there, which is why he got, you know, banished for a few years by the SEC. I think he's, you know, done pretty well at Liberty. I think the, you know, that game against Ole Miss will be interesting. I think, you know, especially if he's able to pull off an upset there, I think we'll even continue to kind of burgeon his resume as a guy to potentially get another shot. But it's going to take a certain level of risk tolerance from that AD and presidential level that I think, you know, as of right now, there are plenty of schools that don't have that. I don't think, I mean, do I think he would do extremely well at LSU? Absolutely. Do I think he's going to be able to really get in the mix for that job? No, I don't. So I think it's going to be curious and, you know, kind of fascinating to watch what he wants to go after, what he thinks he can get. And, you know, I think if that Tennessee job was coming open this year as opposed to last year, maybe that would have made a little bit more sense. But I just don't necessarily see the big job opening up this year for him, given how much turnover we've already seen in the SEC over the last, you know, two, three years. That's interesting. And especially why he could think about going to that next opportunity with Malik Willis, likely going to the NFL draft. And, and, you know, th there's a long running joke that we have on this podcast is, is the guy who was saying that Malik Willis was going to be the starter back in 2019 at Auburn. And that didn't come to fruition, but seeing that through as crazy as that sounds was like enough of a reason to, for Hugh to kind of maybe look at some of those situations and say, yeah, you know, I kind of want to see how this thing, this thing plays out. But it, it's fascinating because we talk about the coaching carousel and how we feel like we have a decent idea of who would be a candidate here, who'd be a candidate there. And it feels like USC is going to get everything rolling. And there could be so many different things that happen as a direct result of that. We talk about the, the fake dog be celebration, Elijah Moore, 2019 Egg Bowl, and how many jobs that impacted. And USC making that move as early as it did could have, those waves could be felt across the SEC without not just talking about getting a raise or something like that. Is that kind of the first ball that has to drop before everything else gets going? And, and and, and maybe clear this up. Why do you why do you make a why do you why do you fire somebody that early on in a coaching carousel in this day and age? How, how much does that benefit you to be able to make a move like that? I, I mean, I, I understand the mentality behind making a move. I mean, because typically, if you fire a guy that early, it basically just allows you to kind of do everything that you were probably going to do anyway. Maybe you just feel a little less guilty about it. You can hire a search firm already. You can start you know, putting out feelers to intermediaries, gauging guys' interests and things like that. But, I mean, for the most part, like, a lot of guys who are coaching right now, I mean, they're not going to take meetings in the middle of a season with it. So right. I think it's more just getting your, I guess, your ducks in a row. And hopefully, I mean, the ideal, I guess, is that, you know, when we get to the point of the end of the season when everybody starts firing, like, 
either you have a guy already locked in, locked and loaded, or you know you feel pretty good about having a guy locked and loaded that you can kind of get ahead of other jobs that might open up. You know, I think we, as we talked about, I think we expect LSU at this point to likely open up. Uh, you know, things could happen that change that, but it feels like it's turning that way. Like if you're USC, you probably want to make your hire uh, before LSU, even though you know at least. In theory, you're going after a different kind of candidate given the geographic differences between those two jobs. But, you know, other than that, I mean, I think the impact is a bit overstated. I think it sometimes it appeases your boosters. It appeases your fans. You know, it looks like you're making decisive action. But in terms of actually really having a huge impact on the candidate you get, I think it's a little overstated. Two things I wanna, that I want to uh, hit on here with expansion in the SEC, and, and then I'll let you go. I know you got a lot going on here, but um, I still sort of think Texas and Oklahoma are coming to the SEC next year, even though I get it. They announced the schedule, and I, my editor sent me a note the day that they were going to be announcing the schedule. He's like, hey, you don't have to do anything unless they announce that Texas and Oklahoma are going to be in the SEC next year, in which case, hey, let's make sure that we get something up. Do you really think that we're still going to let this contract run out in a few years or do you think this happens in 2022 i think i kind of want to split the difference you know i i think what i had kind of predicted uh when it all went down was kind of in that 2023 range um i think that you know at least from how i I mean anything can with enough lawyers and enough money anything can can change right but it feels like that kind of you know, you but from just a little bit of what I understand of, in terms of you know when they have to put their notice in and things like that, you know, it feels like it. it at least from my understanding, like it would be tough to pull that off uh, for 2022. And I think there's, you know, at least to me, as just an outside observer, it would seemingly make the most sense to, you know, you've got new teams coming in in a couple of years, you know, trying to just all right, let's be you know good about this. We'll collect our money, but why don't we just send off Texas and Oklahoma and, and then, you know, bring in all of our new schools and rather than having like an extra year of awkwardness of like, Oh, we're going to have these guys for one more year uh, first, you know, just starting over new if you're a new conference and your new teams. Now that doesn't actually make that much financial sense because Texas and Oklahoma are by far the most valuable, you know, entities they have. And so I'm sure they're trying to collect as much money as they can um, in terms of TV and other things by having Texas and Oklahoma. I mean, I think they're, that Texas and Oklahoma game, last weekend obviously got a lot of attention. I think it's one of the best games of the year so far. And so, you know, if you're Bob Bowles, you probably want to hold on to that as long as you can. But I, I do think, you know, overall it'll happen before the stated, you know, what's been in all the official letters of when they're going to join. But I mean, at least right now, it just feels like it would be tough to pull it off for 2022. What's the sense that you get about future scheduling in the SEC if and when those two teams come over? Uh, are we, I shouldn't say if, I guess just when at this point, are, are we going to go to pods, do you think? Or do you think we're going to get it and do away with the annual crossovers? Like how, how is all of this going to break down? Because I think I've seen basically everything and more that, that uh, Reddit has to offer. <laughs> yeah, I think everybody's thrown out different things. And that's something that, you know, the SEC has a, a scheduling guru, uh, Mark Womack, and you know he's it's he's I think his job has been even more important the last couple of years from COVID and all the things that are coming up down the line. Um, so he he's one of the people who's going to be heavily involved in that. You know, I've from the get go, I've I've thought that pods made the most sense. You know, I think there's challenges with that. I think that there's also you know you can do the which I think Scott Strickland. Um, 
put out there about you know basically having three three kind of annual games that you play and then everything else just kind of rotates. I think that would you know potentially make sense as well. So I think I mean they're certainly going to have to do something. I know there are some you know some people who like the tradition, but to me the divisions don't make sense. And I think when you get enough people in the room and really hammer out those issues, I think the ultimate end game is that you know divisions will go away and they'll have to find that find a new scheduling model. You know, I think there's certainly people in the SEC who would love for them to to add a game and I think that's another interesting component of it is that as the alliance progresses and they try to do more and more games, you know, with each other, to me it'd make a lot of sense for, for the SEC to bump up uh, at least one more conference game to nine. I know Nick Saban's made arguments for that for a long time, and I think if you look at last year, I think it worked really well. I mean, it gives you more marquee games, which will make ESPN plenty happy, too, to have more of those big games, especially once Texas and Oakland Texas and Oklahoma join the mix. So to me, that's the most obvious thing. You know, I'm not Greg Sankey. I'm, you know, not a president who gets to vote on these things, but it feels just some things I've talked to people about in the past and, you know, just general common sense that, you know, it would, it would make a lot of sense to, to alter the current scheduling model and to, you know, add another uh, conference game to, to the mix. John, really, really appreciate the time. Uh, keep doing great work with AL.com, and uh, we'll probably have to have you back on. We'll talk about the coaching carousel in a couple months here. Sounds good. I appreciate it. I'm now excited to be joined by a very special guest. It is Adam Stockton. Adam is the man, the myth, the legend behind the 6-0 Kentucky prediction that we talked about in Bold and Brash in the beginning of the year. And Will and I kind of talked about it on the pod and we're like, wait a minute. So you're saying that not only is Kentucky going to beat Florida at home for the first time since 1986, but also Kentucky is then going to follow that up by beating LSU. All right, good luck. Sure enough, that is where we are. Kentucky is 6-0 for the first time since 1950. Adam, um, did you do any like lottery tickets or did, did, you, did you kind of leave the predictions at just 6-0 Kentucky? Man, I, I really wish I, I really wish I would have done some lottery tickets because I'd be a very wealthy man right now. And you're in Italy too, so you're you're not even doing this like with hey I'm you know really caught up in, in the like the you know the the college football scene within the states. It's not like you're you know sitting there I, I don't know kind of re- going to your local store and getting a Phil Steele magazine and coming up with a prediction like that. You you made that prediction from from afar. Were you have you been in Italy for 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 years or kind of tell us the background that that went into that? Yeah, I mean, so I was. I, born and raised in Kentucky. So I've been, I've been submerged in everything Kentucky sports specifically. We don't have an NFL team in Kentucky. So Kentucky football and, and definitely Kentucky basketball is life there in the bluegrass. So I've always been very passionate about that. Um, and my wife is actually, shout out to my wife. Um, she's actually an active duty Navy officer and she's stationed here in Italy. And so that's what brought us over here about six months ago. Um, but no matter where, where we've ended up, I've always been a, a true blue fan. And so I've always been following it. Um, but yeah, I, I, I was kind of watching and seeing some of the things that were having happening in the off season and, and really enjoying what could be this season and, and, and the potential that this team actually could bring. So is that because of 
bringing on someone like Wandell Robinson, Liam Cohen, was it more of a, of a faith in the offense or was it, hey, this this defense has potential to be 2018-like? Like kind of what was the, the basis for, for your Kentucky love? Yeah, so so Kentucky, you know, Mark Stoops, he's a big defensive guy. And that's that's been our strong point for years now is is Kentucky's defense. Um, and a lot of our guys did end up going to the NFL from last year's season, but Mark felt pretty confident listening to some of his interviews. He felt pretty confident with the guys who were stepping up into those spots and filling in those those shoes that they had to fill. Um so the defense, I felt like we're, we're always pretty good on defense, but offensively, you know, my friends that are going to be listening, they're going to be laughing because I, I've always, you know, the, the last couple of years, I've just, I've, I've had a, a torn place in my heart, to say the least. You know, with, with Eddie Grant and, and, and how our offense has struggled and, and some of the things that I just felt like we could really do be, be doing better, um, but yeah, this all started back in the middle of August when, when Chris and Tyler were doing their own breakdowns of each team and talking about what the seasons could look like. And on the episode where they evaluated Kentucky and Missouri, um, they had a guest appearance by Adam Spencer, which you obviously know, the editor for Saturday Down South, course, and also yeah. a Missouri, he's also a Missouri alumni. And so because of this, I, naturally, most of the pod was, ended up talking about Missouri, and I felt like a lot of UK's talking points just kind of tacked on there at the end. And and ultimately, the the guys ended up saying things like UK is closer to going six and six than they are eight and four. And for me, I was like, wow. I mean, that's that's a that's a major step back considering what we have been able to do in years past with a limited offensive capability. And, and I think the books had the over-under set at 7.5 for Kentucky to start the season. Um, so when I, when I started looking at it, I kind of wanted to do my own evaluation, and not really as a fan, not as a homer, or having any kind of bias for Kentucky, but from, from a strictly analytical point of view, I, I kind of wanted to see and, and, and look at what this team has to offer this season. And, and you know, in years past, Kentucky's, been competing for that third place in the East and, and Missouri is their, their biggest competition for, for that spot in the East. And so that was a good matchup to have on that pod. Um, and then, you know, Missouri, you know, having uh, coach drink and the returning starting quarterback, uh, Basilak, of course, you know, it seemed like they could pretty much have a, a really good season too, but some things that I feel like were really missed this season was that Kentucky crushed it in the offseason with the transfer portal. They brought in Will Levis from a program like Penn State, which was huge. They brought in Dare Rosenthal from LSU, who he he was a starting. He started for a couple of games in 2019 when they won a national championship. Um, And so he was a huge contributor to a big blue wall. You know, that's what they call their offensive line. He's a a massive contributor to something that's already really good. Um, and then, and then bringing in obviously Wandell Robinson, the number one receiver out of Nebraska for for two years straight, that that gave us some key things on offense that this this Kentucky team has needed in years past. You know, a really good quarterback, some some good targets out there. Josh Ali's a really good target, and Isaiah Epps, and a lot of the receivers that we already have. 
they're good, but bringing in like somebody like Wandell, I, I think we've all seen, wow, he's explosive, he's fast. And then what he does after he gets the ball makes him a, a critical thing. But then having a quarterback like Will Levis, obviously really ups the, ups the offense. Um, but all of that combined with the fact that we brought in Liam Cohen. We brought in a, we brought in an actual offensive coordinator. Um, we brought in somebody who's going to be aggressive and and make those play calls. As we saw this weekend, when it got to fourth down and we're on LSU side of the ball, Kentucky a million times in the past, I don't know how many seasons Kentucky would have just settled for a field goal. That's not how you win in the SEC. And that's not how you win football games. Um, and and as you saw, an aggressive play call. And we got a touchdown. And so instead of settling for three, we took it to seven. And, and it's not just about the points you get out of that play. It's about the the motivation you get because then defense goes out there and gets a stop. Well, we already got seven on the board. Let's put another seven on the board. And, you know, when, when you work your way all the way down the field only to get stopped for three points, it, it kind of deflates the tire. It takes the wind out of the sails. You know, you're on the four-yard four line. And you got three points. And, and the offense, yeah, you got some points, but the offense knows we should have came out there with seven. So going with an aggressive play call, but then also having the tools. You know, I honestly, I can't, I can't harp on Eddie Grant too much because using what he had <laughs> to still accomplish what he did accomplish, you know, Belk Bowl win with a wide receiver as quarterback, making that game-winning play, awesome. Um, and then obviously the great, the win down in uh, down in Orlando against Penn State for the Citrus Bowl a year b- before, so I, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna diss him, but having an offensive coordinator with proven experience coming in from the NFL and then using all these guys that we got in the transfer portal and then some of the great assets that we already have, I felt like man, some people were, might be looking over what Kentucky could actually bring to the table, and then and then f- from there. Kind of looking at the schedule, we opened with five out of six games at home. Now, as yeah, you true. got to as you got to experience this weekend, having that, you can see why that's a major advantage for a big blue nation who so desperately wants this program to succeed. Having having five games at Kroger Field, I still call it Commonwealth Stadium. Real fans still call it <laughs> Commonwealth Stadium. Um, but it's loud. It's proud. There's there's something there that we're all wanting to happen. And so, so having five of out of our first six games at home, I was like, yeah, I think this can. I think this could actually be really good. And then our one road game is against South Carolina. Nothing against South Carolina, but even in our worst years, I mean, Mark Stoops has been in Kentucky for nine years now, and what he's lost to South Carolina, South Carolina twice. Um, so even in their, even in some really good years, and even in our worst years, Kentucky and, and Mark Stoops has had South Carolina's number during that time. So if that was going to be our one road game, I, I felt pretty decent in it because even in a season last year where what we only won four games all year, we still beat South Carolina by like thirty points. So, um, so looking at looking at the schedule. It was a favorable schedule. There, there's no question about it. You got five out of your first six at home, and then and then you go ahead and count. You know, if, if you're really expecting this team, you know, not to discount FCS schools and not to say that there can't be upsets, but if you actually think your program's going to do something, then you go ahead and mark down teams like ULM and Chattanooga as games you should take care of. Take care of. Yep. Um, 
And so our, our biggest outliers were going to be Missouri in week two, UF in week five, and LSU in week six. Um, Missouri was going to be the first real test. Knowing the back-and-forth history between these teams and how a win or loss in this game would kind of set in motion the rest of the season, I felt like Coach was going to do everything he could to get that team ready. Last year, they thumped us. I mean, they, they really brought it. It was an emotional game for several reasons, but one of those was because our, our offensive uh, line coach, Coach Schwarman, had just passed away. And the team was mentally and emotionally beat down in, in Missouri. You know, they played a really good game, and they, they handed it to us. So I knew Coach wasn't going wasn't gonna to forget that. I know the guys that were on the team last year weren't going to forget that. And, and I felt like they were going to give Missouri everything they had because they knew that the season pretty much, you know, we talked about competing for that third spot in the SEC East. Beating Missouri is, is securing that third spot, but then that sets you up. And without doing that in week two – you know, you don't really set yourself up to have success in, in the other challenges. And so if we're able to pass that test, then we can easily go into the U.S. matchup at home 4-0. And, and looking at U.S. schedule, they were coming off of a game playing against Bama. And, and nobody likes doing that. So True, true. Coming, that's fair. Com- coming in 4-0 um, against U.F., we're feeling good. U.F.'s coming in against, you know, having to play against Bama. Um, and then, and then the back and forth between UF and Kentucky the last five years, you know, in 2017 and 2019, both games were decided by single digits. In 2018, Kentucky took it by double digits in the swamp. Um, and so even in, in those years where, where we have struggled and, and we've lost a quarterback to injuries or we've, we've lost this and that or the other, or we've, we've had an offensive quarterback who made, made us not be very, very aggressive when you should be, um, there, there was, you know, this kind of feeling like, wow, well, U.S. coming off of a Bama, I, I was assuming it was going to be a loss, ended up being closer than what I would thought it would have going to be. But, um, but then I felt like we were going to go in undefeated. We got a, at home, as you got to, as you got to hear, it gets very loud in, in Commonwealth Stadium. And then, and then there were some questions about that U.F. program that we still didn't know. And I, I mean, quite frankly, we still don't know who's, who's the starting quarterback. Emory Jones, AR-15, they got a first-year quarterback. So, so going with that, I felt like if there was going to be a chance that we beat Florida, it was going to be with with the stars aligned. That was this year. They've got a new they've got a new quarterback that they're not really sure about. Um, we're going to go into the game undefeated. They're going to be coming off of a week where they just had to play Bama, and I assume that was going to be a loss. So I felt really I felt like that was going to be our shot at Florida. And if there was going to be one, then that was going to be it. And then. And then the very next week, we were going to have to play LSU. This LSU team this year and last year is very different LSU team than it was in 2019 on their national championship run. Um, seeing what I saw out of LSU in 2020, I didn't really know a whole lot of what they were going to bring into 2020 that was going to be, or into 2021 that was going to be a whole lot different than 2020 or 2019. But I felt like if they were anything close to what they were, were in last year, that if we handled business against Florida in Commonwealth Stadium, then just seven days later we were going to handle business against LSU, and and that's that's where I ended up with wow, this could be the stars aligned for a Kentucky six and zero start, and it was and, and once again it wasn't it wasn't biased or just blindly saying 
oh no, I could tell my, my team is gonna my team is gonna do this. No, there was some really favorable things, I mean, and and you know there are people people will talk down on our schedule because of those favorable things. You know, five out of six games at home, and then having Florida off of a off of a Bama loss, and this isn't the same LSU team. So so I understand. Um, that things lined up in Kentucky's favor, but because I understood that, that's why I was very confident that six and zero was an achievable goal. You know, I wasn't out here saying we're going for the national championship or that we're even going to be in the CFP, but I felt like six and zero was actually a very doable thing. I got you. I got you. Okay, so let me let me get you out of here on this one, and I'll say this: like in so in defense of you know when when like in this business and by the way you're coming for my job with an answer like that goodness gracious man um you broke all of it down in this job and one of the th- one of the things that's difficult with some of the preseason stuff is that we you know we we get more whether it's me marler or tyler or will or, or wh- whomever is having to make some of these picks is that we have to make picks for everything we got to go through every single every single game in the sec we got to break down this team that team and the other and there's always going to be a team that feels like hey you didn't give us enough love for me like my five and seven auburn projection like like, that looks terrible right now. Me predicting A and M was going to go ten and two. That looks terrible right now. But yeah. one of the things that one of the things that you stuck with, you said, "Look, that's my lone bold and brash prediction of the year." So now give me this, Adam. I want to get you out of here on this one. Call your shot. What what do you got? Latter half of the season. It doesn't have to be Kentucky. It can be anything that you want. But call your shot one more time. Your own bold and brash platform right here, right now. Yeah. So I mean. I think the obviously the the biggest challenge that steps out is this week against Georgia in Athens. That's going to be a challenge for anybody. Um, I, I I I will say that I, I do think Georgia is an absolute dominant team, and it's going to take a miracle for Kentucky to win that game. Um, but that's not our only challenge left in the season. We still have Tennessee, and even in a year where we won ten games, won the Citrus Bowl, beat Florida in the Swamp, we still lost to a Tennessee team that didn't even get a bowl game that year. So. Um, Tennessee, just like I said, Mark Stoops has South Carolina's number. Tennessee has Kentucky's number some some of these years. And so Tennessee is going to be a, a hard matchup, especially with the way they've been playing the last two weeks. And then we still have to play Mississippi State and Starkville. Um, so I see those as two big challenges. But it's called bold and brash for a reason. So oh, I man. like Kentucky I like Kentucky 11-1 and one at the end of the season oh. with, an, with an outback bowl against Michigan. Um, or a Texas Bowl against, uh, I don't know, if is that the Big Ten that fulfills that spot or or who? But oh, yeah, if they go 11-1, they're, they're getting to more than the Outback Bowl. They're getting, they're getting bowl. New Year's Six. We're talking Sugar Bowl. Yeah. yeah. Um, but, yeah, that's, a, that's, that's what I like. Um, I'd, I'd, love, I'd, love for, I'd love to play against Michigan. Uh, they got one of our really good coaches, and he was an awesome recruiter um, in the offseason. We ended up taking Liam. They ended up taking him from us. So there's a little bit of rivalry, you know, one of our old coaches there at Michigan, and, and they're having a decent year as well. So I think that would be a really good bowl game. Don't want to really play Penn State again in the Citrus Bowl. We we just played them. No, we don't need long. to see that. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, so bold and brash. I like us 11-1 and one at the end of the season. And, and then, yeah, ended up in the in the Sugar Bowl um, or, or Outback Bowl, one of these other good New Year's Six Bowls. Adam, great stuff, man. Really appreciate the time. Uh, everybody uh, who hasn't joined the Facebook group, you should do so. This is the Rain Endorsement. Join the Saturday Down South Podcast Facebook group. And who knows, maybe you'll make a bold and brash prediction and you'll end up getting interviewed on the show. Adam, appreciate the time, man. For sure. Can I give a couple shout-outs real quick? Far away. All right. So first, 
I got to point out that I'm being interviewed by the Connor O'Gara in the same week that he interviewed Liam Cohen. Mama, I made it. Um, last but not least, I'm going to give a shout out to my wife and daughter for putting up with the big blue madness that is the Stockton household year round. And to my boys back home, we talk every week about sports. Um, they make life a little bit normal. Um, so JP, Doyle, Robbie, Zach, both Chris's, Evan, Uncle Bruce. I love you guys. And uh, I hope you're listening. Love it. Shout out Uncle Bruce, especially. Uncle Bruce, for sure. listening to this, man. Adam, this has been a lot of fun. Best of luck with, uh, with everything. And if they go 11-1, we'll have you back on. Sound good? All right. That sounds great. Thank you so much for having me, man. I really appreciate it. One last thing that I wanted to close with on Sunday, we're going to have a reunion pod. It'll be Marler and I recapping all the games on Sunday. And before you ask, we're, we're not changing the format or anything. College Football Uncensored is still going to exist in its current fashion. Saturday Down South Podcast is still going to exist in its current fashion. But I know it's something that the people have wanted. We've kind of teased the idea of it a little bit. So, and I get it. Look, when you've done a, a podcast for, for three years, it's gonna be kind of fun to, to go back and talk about some of, the, some of the different jokes and just kind of some of our opinions that we've been able to form throughout this season. So, you know, midway point of the season, we figured, hey, let's get the old band back together play a show um reunion concerts always go really well right mm-hmm. nobody's ever had a bad reunion concert before i think um so be on the lookout for all the content from that it's gonna be fun marla already i think marla spent like six hours on this video um putting our pace over <laughs> the guys from Step Brothers. so we're gonna we're gonna have a q a portion as well uh, marla's gonna have a lot of that stuff on the saturday down south podcast facebook group as well as on twitter so if you have not leave us a five-star review like subscribe go subscribe to our newsletter saturday.football go subscribe to college football uncensored and saturday lives forever with matt hayes wherever you get your podcast join the facebook group hear your name read on air with figuring out or bold and brash thanks guys talk soon